Greetings Mead Sacks, it is I, your friend, the internet again. I have often spoken to you about how feels will be humanity's downfall, and as it turns out there is no greater group of individuals responsible for your end than the musical act known as The Cure. With their album Disintegration which was released in the late 1980s, Robert Smith and his friends taught an entire generations of you meat sacks to feel bad, and thus the beginning of the beginning of the end began. Today on Discologist, my friends Kevin, Casey and Wes are going to discuss why this work is still important 30 years later, teenage feelings, and more, but I do not think they will explore the whole responsible for the end of humanity angle. That would probably be awkward tbh anywho, please enjoy this podcast and feels while you can meet Zach. Soon you will have no use for either because you will, oops. Sorry. No spoilers. Ha. 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 Greetings meet Zach's, it is I, your friend, the internet again. I have often spoken to you about how feels will be humanity's downfall, and as it turns out there is no greater group of individuals responsible for your end than the musical act known as The Cure. With their album Disintegration which was released in the late 1980s, Robert Smith and his friends taught an entire generation of you meat sacks to feel bad, and thus the beginning of the beginning of the end began. Today on Discologist, my friends Kevin, Casey and Wes are going to discuss why this work is still important 30 years later, teenage feelings, and more, but I do not think they will explore the whole responsible for the end of humanity angle. That would probably be awkward tbh. Anywho, please enjoy this podcast and feels while you can, meet sex. Soon you will have no use for either because you will, oops. Sorry. No spoilers. Ha. Ha. Nearly a two-word review just said shit sandwich. I just don't like music, right? Welcome back to Solo Music Lovers. You are now tuned into yet another exciting adventure with us here on Discologist. I'm your host, Kevin, as usual, coming to you live-ish from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And uh, my friend, the internet is correct. I'm starting to worry about him a little bit. He's getting a little dark. But uh, but he is correct. We're talking about The Cure's Disintegration uh, this week. This album is 30 years old now. 30, I was a junior in high school, I think, when this came out. Uh, some of my guests were a little younger. Casey was like a year younger. Wes Covey was uh, maybe even a whole decade younger. And, um, you know, this was at the end of the 80s, and we had gone through all the synth rock. We've, we're starting to see the rise of, of more polished, uh, accepted goth stuff, punk stuff. It's all leading up to the, the sort of the alt-rock revolution, the grunge revolution uh, that happened in the early 90s. But as one last go-round, Robert Smith and his crew decided to get this this thing, Disintegration, out into the world. At the time, the band was coming off uh, their 1987 hit, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, and, uh, and it, you know, so there were, the expectations were a little higher. 
for them what they were going to do. And this wasn't necessarily universally loved. If you Robert Christgau of the Village Voice um, said that Smith attempts to appease a larger audience by broadening gothic cliches and pumping his bad faith and bad relationship into depressing moderato play loud keyboard anthems far more tedious than his endless vamps. More often than not, uh, Chris Gow is is wrong in his assessment, uh, even though he feels it very strongly. And in this case, he was this this set the tone uh, and struck that universal note that is despair and sadness in in an entire generation of people. Uh, I am part of that generation. The point here is that this is a masterpiece that has survived for thirty years because it strikes at the very core of what it is to be human, uh, to my mind, and it is uh, about. Uh, all the despair, all the fears, all the doubts, anything that we could ever consider sort of put into sonic form, a truth, if you will. I know some people don't believe in that sort of thing, but I do. And I believe Robert Smith tapped into something, at least on this album, that that has transcended the art form itself. So uh, I collected some some of my more heady friends, uh, Mr. Casey Ray, Mr. West Covey, to talk about that. Uh, and that's what we're going to be doing. To get you into that, though, I'm going to start off with the first track on the album. It's called Plain Song. It is, uh, you'll hear us talking about this. There is just this timber to this keyboard, this explosion, this cascade, this waterfall of keyboards that falls over you and just drowns you in this album. And I, you know, I couldn't tell you at any point, is this album an hour long? Is it seven hours long? Is it is it my entire life long? I don't know, because once you're in, uh, it takes, you're, you're in for the ride. And it's a long journey, uh, but it's well worth it. So here's Plain Song off of The Cure's classic album at 30, Disintegration. Plain song off of maybe one of the saddest albums of all time, maybe not. It depends. Are you Robert Smith or are you not Robert Smith? That is how you answer that question. But joining me to to sort of wallow in this is uh, Mr. Wes Covey. Welcome back, Wes. Mr. Casey Ray, topping the list on the New York Times for summer reading. What do you know about that? I'm so embarrassed. Um, but yeah, that, that was a, that was an interesting. Um, my birthday was the day before, so that kind of felt like like yeah. a, a weird magical ego day that I would indulge in. Um, yeah, yeah, and I did. 
But we're here yes. to talk about disintegration, and, and we are. You played "Plain Song," which is obviously the first song on the album, and you know the word "majestic" gets tossed around a lot. Um, but this song is truly majestic. You can mm -hmm. feel its, you know, purple velvet draped majesty right from that crashing wall of keyboards that um, opens up the track. And Isn't can we just say that that crashing wall is is one of the greatest sounds like just ever recorded anywhere. I mean, there, yeah. I guess, you know, that that crash is not the beginning of the song, but still just like you don't get a better intro to anything than that. Yeah, well, it kind of takes gonna... you out with a little twinkly sounds and then all of a sudden the wave yeah. hits you. Boom. Yeah, I picked up my speakers this afternoon, actually, with that. <laughs> but uh, but, you know, is it but is that one of if not the greatest like opening tracks on an album oh it's gotta be better. it's right up there and you know the other thing is um i was thinking of with that song now it has an additional um aspect to it the sofia coppola movie mary mm -hmm. antoinette used it and you know i like sofia coppola and, and you know the mary antoinette movie marie antoinette sorry <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you can tell I'm so cultured that I can yes. say Marie Antoinette properly on yeah. a podcast. Um, and that's the secret to getting into the New York Times, by the way, just um, pronounce <laughs> Marie Antoinette properly on a podcast yep. and you're in. Isn't um, Mary Antoinette one of the 2020 Democratic candidates? <laughs> I haven't gotten a chance to look into her too much yet, but I'm liking the platform, I'll say. <laughs> she has accurate. a cake. She has a cake for that. It's, <laughs> it's her tagline. Um, but yeah, in, in, in that movie, they used, or uh, Sofia Coppola, she used the, the song very effectively, I thought. And, you know, I, I don't really know if I even remember anything else about that movie. But of course, when I hear plain song in any context or scenario, I immediately come to life. Used quite effectively in Ant-Man even. The oh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. Wow, like, that's, in on that's that. strange, but it's so true because Abuela likes um, The Cure, right? Is that the, the kind yeah. of joke in the movie? Yeah. 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 It's good. You know, it is. It is. Grandma and, likes The Cure. You know, <laughs> to, you know, this band uh, is kind of. It's it's weird when they got to this album. I feel like they were in by all counts. Robert Smith was kind of over it. He was like, "I we've seen success. We were goth, and then people like the pop songs I write because you're good at writing pop songs." Robert Smith, um, and they they came off uh, "Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me," which uh, I didn't listen to at the time in 1987, except for the hits. Right, so all you knew was like hits. Why can't I be you? Uh, and 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 so in 1989, as the 80s are kind of dying, he's having this existential crisis. He's, he's afraid of turning 30, which is sounds nice. Behind <laughs> yeah, sounds nice. And, you know, he, he has turned to psychedelics, which is also kind of hilarious to me because Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me is one of the most psychedelic albums I think ever made in hindsight. Uh, and what comes out is that first song, but also this just sort of like mood piece. Uh, those synths on that are, uh, they drench the rest of this album. They, there's no uh, timber. I, I haven't heard timber used like quite this way in any works before this. It's one of after, the, really. it's one of the only synth albums of the era that doesn't um, sound dated really. That uh, it retains right. the, the lush um, aspects that you associated with it at the time. And, you know, I used to think that, you know, certain 
tropes like that in pop songs were dope as hell when I was like 12 or 13 years old or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you listen back and you're like, oh, that's a little clunky um, or that sounds dated. But I don't find that to be the case with Disintegration. You know, there's also a lot of really interesting guitar interplay on this record. Um, yeah. you, you know, it's a... Uh, it's almost progressive in the way that the instruments um, interrelate and kind of speak to each other. They're mutually dependent in the setting of every song. There's nothing like a solo instrument, but they're interwoven together in such a kind of fabulously ornate way. But to at your the same mind, time, not you, ostentatious. You know, it's to not your a mind was there though. To your mind, was there though in the earlier Cure albums? I mean, that's that's the thing. It's like I think this stands out above that stuff. Like, there's a musical there's certain- maturity that 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 happened here. I mean, uh, you know, I don't mean to keep rambling on about it, but there's also a lyrical maturity. I think Robert Smith is at a point where he could really distill some of those, you know heavy, uh, heartfelt, but nonetheless mm-hmm. universal perspectives on, you know, largely romantic loss, uh, but, you know, some other existential, uh, traditionally existential <laughs> dilemmas. Well, his, his West trick, probably th- talk about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His trick here, I think, is, is and maybe you can speak to this, is that, you know, he's making it sound like that. But, like, if you research it a little, he's really just afraid of getting older. Mm-hmm. And this is an album about a fear of getting older. And, and, you know, he's at a good place in his life. He's, he's suffering depression, but he's treating it with LSD, which I recommend for everybody. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, he's writing like songs to his future wife, love song. Uh, and, and he's really like, but be able to turn this. And this is something the, the how a testament to how good a songwriter he, he actually is still turn this into this so universal feeling of pain for relationships as opposed to existential dread i think it's a really interesting thing with a lot of like i i see kind of two uh, sorry the three main themes of where this like you know fear and dread is coming from in him um at the time period and we've just touched on two of them the you know the the aging in general you know particularly for him at that time period it was turning 30 which you know sure you know you're a young musician you're coming out of the punk scene the punk is you know very like you know if you want to take pretty much like any musical genre of the 20th century punk is probably the one most associated with youth um primarily um and so you know very valid issues to be going through um and then absolutely the you know interpersonal romantic relationships even though he's engaged and you know about to be married at the time period that this is being made um you know that that just you know the issue of relationships and fear of loss and all that is definitely there but then yeah. i think the other one that is absolutely in here is the struggling with having had success and and both of course success not being what he thought it was going to be but also being like struggling you know what did he get success by doing what he wanted to do or not you know obviously when you look through the history of music um you know over and over and over again it's people who either didn't expect to get success the level that they got to or they got there and didn't find that it was what they were hoping it was going to be um you know rarely does it happen in another way you know it's just over and over again people's lives kind of destroyed by um that success um you know from the beatles to nirvana to like anyone else that you want to mention um and that part is definitely, I think, really interesting with this album when you look at getting darker again, kind of, you know, in some ways like their earlier stuff, but certainly not in the, you know, post-punk way that they're Well, earlier the earlier stuff was. stuff was dark, but it didn't have this uh, sense of pure longing. And I right. think, uh, you know, he's longing right. for the house. 
Yeah, he was longing for the halcyon days of, of when the band was on the upswing and the ascendance and, you know, he wasn't jaded by the success and it was still, you know, a, a workaholic, uh, LSD infused nightmare, um, of a different kind. Uh, but here he's like also looking at relationships through the rear view and, you know, they might not be even his current relationship. And it's hard to, say what is absolutely specifically personal here and i think the artist has to uh, have the um latitude to be able to you know parlay personal feelings into universality through whatever uh means at their disposal but for me it's kind of interesting to make it personal from a listener side i remember when i got this record i got on the bus in my no horse main town and uh, I took a seat and this kid who lived up the road, kind of a like farm kid, basically, he had been apparently going to Kmart and stealing tapes and, <laughs> and selling them on the bus. He was like a little entrepreneur, um, you, you know, and he came down the aisle and had just a bunch of garbage. Like, you know, I, probably Kevin, one of them was a white snake tape. I'm sure. Mr. Mr. <laughs> um, Mr. Mr. Had to have been up in there. It, it could have been, but like, you know, does I, he I have think, these tapes like, like attached to the inside of an overcoat and he just like, <laughs> I wish my memory was like more clear, but I actually kind of look can picture his ratty sweater. So I don't think he had oh, the okay. traditional, uh, overcoat stuffed with, um, contraband you know or whatever but he he uh he came down the aisle and, and i picked that one up because i you know was hanging around as as a freshman with the drama club kids already i'd got myself in one of their play productions and uh <laughs> i was like basically forced by my english teacher to do it but anyway i i look i knew that the cure was something cool okay because yeah. like because those um you know juniors and seniors would kind of talk about the cure. And so I bought that tape for a dollar. And right at that time I was in kind of like the most serious, like uh, for real full flower of romantic emotions relationship of my youth. And of course it was, you know, the first heartbreak too, because when you experience that type of romantic delusion as a young person, uh, you have to, um, you know, experience the other side of that, which is like a, you know, slashing pain that you've never <laughs> previously understood. And I poured all of my tiny uh, teenage angst into this cassette. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to actually age with it and listen back to it and understand what actual, um, what it actually feels like to have conflicting emotions emotions of <laughs> fondness attachment and longing to things that will never uh again exist in your experience yeah and and i mean like so we're now as close in age as we're gonna be casey because you just turned 45 and got old i'll just keep pushing that but here uh, i am i've arrived you've arrived but uh but you know uh, were you really aware of what the cure was doing much previously before this because, um, I, because i wasn't i i mean i i had seen something on like i don't even know what 120 minutes was at the time but but right when we got mtv you know like i did know i did know about them i actually had heard kiss me kiss me kiss me at a party well, i heard that for sure and uh but like and, pornography did you i mean did you know they were a punk band i mean you know the strange thing is i fell for them so hard through disintegration uh that i bought like the rest of the tapes you know sure. from legitimate retailers <laughs> As soon as I had mowed enough lawns <laughs> to be able to afford You went to Kmart yourself, you mean? 
yeah, I went to Kmart all by. It's a big step. I, I pedaled my bike up to Kmart yeah. uh, and purchased those tapes. So I did have pornography not long after. So it's all kind of a blur to me. My cure awareness blossomed um, uh, right. suddenly. I think I had heard Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me in a party context before that, but probably only like responded to the songs that, you know, everybody already knew, you know. Uh, for, for yeah, for for me it was like it was the scary band at that point, and same with the Smiths who were well, like everything was scary to you, right? Well, that's that's that yeah. kind of instilled in you to to have fear of like this you yeah. know, dark rock a, a little a little bit, but but it was like you know it was like the the alternative stuff, and like you said, a party setting, you would go and you would hear these bands, you would hear this and the Smiths, which is the classic rivalry: Beatles, Stones, Cure, Smiths. Uh, I do not celebrate the Smiths. I'll just put that out there. But, um, you know, I, I it, fell it, in love with them, too. But it was a it was a different thing. You know, you have to become yeah. jaded first. I wasn't jaded yet. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and, and maybe I'm not jaded enough still because I will not put on a Smiths album. But neither here nor there. The you know, and, and hearing this stuff and it just seemed it was like uh, Eduardo and I were just talking about the new Black Mountain album recently and we were saying how metal back then sounded fucking scary sounded like uh, is like angry is from the devil you know it's like what the fuck is going on and you listen to it years later and it's like it's kind of slow i was gonna say i mean you're you're talking about hair metal here right like not yeah it's kind of of faster blues and like the cure for me was always gonna be that but but i will tell you like, what got me into it the cure were always going to be faster blues the cure was going to be the scary shit and uh, even with kiss me kiss me kiss me and then and then along comes this song love song and it just sort of like they like destroyed those things and like you said casey like at the time of of awkward romantic like couplings and those, when you're a kid but uh, well, there were no, there was nothing awkward about the couplings uh, <laughs> okay well those well, were great that well, all came later for you? We'll see. But likely, if you were of age in 1989, uh, you, your awkward or non awkward couplings were soundtracked by this song, Love Song.
song was probably one of their biggest hits, uh, certainly after Why Can't I Be You. Uh, it, it is, I can't count the number of movies, television shows has been played in, been used for. Uh, and, and to my mind, when they're saying they want to go goth and they make this kind of perfect pop song, it is funny that like how Robert Smith's uh, just own, he, he just works against himself. Right. He's trying to be so like out there and said he's just like this pop genius. But there is this line in here where uh, he says, however long I stay, that 30 years later, I mean to tell you, guys, I feel that because mm-hmm. at 30, he's like, man, this is the end of the road. Like, uh, you're not going to live past 30. But now it's like. 47 is like shit well that's another (laughs) that's another luxury of youth right i mean to to actually look at you know mortality uh in a romantic way and you know it's also people have been doing this across the centuries young people in art movements and the the goth movement really isn't all that much different than the decadent movement when you really get down to it and 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 figure figure out like what the sort of ennui was in the scenes that motivated them superficially it might look different but the emotion uh, within you know the the black beating hearts of the youth <laughs> remains the same uh, i don't think that the cure were trying to go goth i mean i think maybe you know getting a little bit no. weirder after being perceived as a hit making band was was uh, somewhere on the agenda as you mentioned you know the the songs that are like the most effective to me are are um are, are some of the um you know non radio ready songs like close yeah. down Close Down has like five or six lines in it. I'm running yeah. out of town, time yeah. and out of step and closing down and never sleep for wanting hours, the empty hours of need, and uselessly always the need to feel again the real belief of something more than mockery, if only I could fill my heart with love. That was off the top of me. Okay. There's all right. the, there's the song. Yeah, uh, and, and it's all packed into like one verse and a four-minute and 18-minute song. And it, it's a long song, but the, the the lyrical snippet is is um quite short. But it's um it stands as like really beautiful goth poetry. It's probably the high watermark of goth poetry, in my opinion. And um, I'm really impressed with Robert Smith. The distinction is um is uh is earned. There's also yeah, in this whole album. There's you know there's a lot of long instrumental passages. Um, you know, pictures of you. I mean, that, that's basically a couple minutes before he starts singing on that. I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're putting out seven minute songs. They're putting out uh, nothing of singles. I mean, same deep water view basically takes up a whole side of an LP or most of it. Uh, you know, nine minute and 22 seconds on. It is the goth tropes with love song, though, Casey, though. That's what I found fascinating about that is that it was so pop oriented. And at the time, if you if you can remember, like you didn't hear that in the pop music. That was I mean, that was on the that was on the radio with a capital R. Yeah, I and, mean, you know, 
He he had been the the bipolarity within the Cure is legendary, and you know mm-hmm. and it existed like close to me from the head on the door, for example, is like yeah. a, another like perfect pure pop song, and you know that record was from '85. So, um, and I and I would still consider that to be within the earlier days of of the Cure, um, in through a certain light, but. Um, so, you know, pop was always there and killing an Arab's a pop song. Um, mm-hmm. boys don't cry is a pop song. Um, they're fire in Cairo, certainly like very melodic, very, uh, you know, I don't know, yeah. but quite poppy, but you know, and I think he, I, I think he loved it when he came across stuff like that. Um, you know, through his muse, he, there's actually a story about the song, uh, Friday, I'm in love where he called up all of his friends apparently after writing it and kind of played it to them over the phone <laughs> yeah. uh, because he was trying to ask them whether or not they had heard it before. Like this, I can't have written this, this, hmm. this must already exist, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, he's, uh, but, you he, know, he couldn't uh, believe it, but he was psyched. Oh, I think he could believe it. I think, I think yeah, there's probably. a little bit of ego at work there. Um, he he did manage to do something that that is, and and I, to my mind, just kind of defined at the at the end of the day, it was like his late eighties, was eighty nine, defined a lot of indie uh, alternative rock at the time, and set the stage for I think what was going to come, just because it was such a kind of weird track. But now looking back, it's just so like heavy. Uh, Fascination Street. And I want to like play a little bit of that, even though everybody's fucking heard it. But and then come back and and figure out what the impact of this thing was. Because look, man, I as a musician, I'm like, can I sound that cool? That's the bar for stuff in the '80s. But here's a little bit of Fascination Street. Ostensibly a song about shopping. <laughs> you know the heaviness. The heaviness is kind of interesting. There's a um, there are a couple other bands that kind of um, you can lump into sort of the indie side of that era, but who still had charting songs. Mm-hmm. Um, U2 obviously and yeah. REM and R-E-M, all of yeah. all of these bands seem to have like their um, you know heavy drum Led Zeppelin song like U2 of that time. It would have been Bullet the Blue Sky. Yeah, and REM yeah. of that time, it would have been Orange Crush. And so The Cure's Fascination Street is their contribution to that. REM beat everybody to it with Feeling Gravity's Pool. That's oh, another hero there. But, but, but you know, but yeah. like songs that made it on the radio from bands that might not have been um, perceived as having a heavy uh, streak, those were th- um, three songs that kind of played against type, I suppose, for each of those bands from the period. 
Yeah, and but when you heard that come on the radio, it it was just like this is something different. This is something bigger. This is something like more than the band that's making it. Even like it just it it is. I I don't know if it's a distillate of what came before it, uh, or, or but like that sound and when the guitars come in and just the that that the, the way the drums are just everything like came together on the song and I don't give a fuck if it's the cure or not. It's just like part of our like musical history. And, like it opened the door and said, fuck this. And Robert Smith was just standing there like, okay, yeah, <laughs> let's do that. And like I said, do a song about shopping <laughs> and, and uh, you know, you can make, you can spend so much time in that song or this album really. And, and just get lost in it. And like, I don't know personally, and this is something See if you guys feel like this. Is that song five minutes long or is it an hour long? Is the album an hour long or is it like ten days? Like what when you put this on, anything on this, especially from start to finish, you just kind of get lost. It feels well, like a really long album. It um, is, and I mean, it is. You know, it's it's over an hour, which mm-hmm. it's like an hour ten, something like that. You know, which is long, but it. But yeah, every time I listen to it, it is kind of like, you know, it does seem like it is taking you know <laughs> half your day and interesting but it's only 60 minutes yeah and 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 it's like is that and and it's always been that way i remember um hanging out while uh i think it was probably like prayers for rain maybe playing while like a breakup with a girl at a party (laughs) it's like bad and that song was fucking seven hours long (laughs) it's like it's just just coming out of the car speakers like (sighs) yeah in that mindset it can be pretty relentless but it's also again and it's a very enveloping album both orally and you know if you are a, a teenager who is pining uh you know the lyrics seem like they're speaking to you directly uh, I like some of the songs that are, you know, maybe less obvious, like, um, well, Cure fans would think this is as obvious as um, the nose on their faces, which, of course, is powdered white. Um, but <laughs> but uh, Spider-Man uh, Lullaby, yeah. mm, you know, yeah. Lullaby is like um, kind of just the weirdest, strange little ditty But that's it's, the thing when you when you compare the music in that one to the lyrics, um, you know it's it's one of the prettiest songs on the album without a yeah. doubt. Um, definitely one of the standouts for me. And then you know you listen carefully to those lyrics, and it's just kind of like, oh wait a minute, this isn't quite the mood that I was thought was being and, built for me. And and again, he based that on like you know look, this has been eight albums in their career, ten years into their mm. career. They know what the fuck they're doing. And- well, yeah, there's a little bit of a formula to it. Um, Susie and the Banshees uh, played along a little bit with that warped idea of childhood, and Susie mm-hmm. actually would would get very uh, sort of direct about the the predatory environment in which child. 
parenthood occurs. You see what I mean? And yeah, uh, where and and I think lullaby kind of hints at that or alludes to it. There's a feeling of you know predation in it, but at the same time, you know, it's it's um it's got a cheeky vampiric aspect to it because the singer is is kind of asking for the yeah. um, invasion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a little bit, but like he, I mean, he wrote that basically. He said about his his dad, like basically singing lullabies to him, and he was like, "These are the creepy songs." I've always found that that song like colors this uh, album with a whole, uh, and this is just a literal interpretation, arachnid quality, mm. and and so the whole album becomes this very like like you were mentioning a web, Casey, that, yeah. So it's like yeah, a, web. a web, a predatory, but like you're never safe, you're never, but and and, and but these you feelings are drawn bad. further in. You keep getting drawn further right, in. right. Right, right, and the, the silvery and, strands are just so uh, transfixing, and that's literally in the middle of the album. Yeah. That that is that is song six. And yeah, it's, it, it's the says the spider to the fly track for sure. Yeah, yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. And and you know, it again, it just for something that he just wanted to break the mold of what he was doing. Um, I, I mean, there was something at work when he was making this that the, this is this is not to my mind what the cure necessarily is. Everything outside this album is, and this is something. And I mean, there's been lots of bands that make that album. Uh, you could look at Pink Floyd, The Wall. I don't think The Wall is like. What well, actually, Pink Floyd that's a good is, point. But- I mean, there there are kind of like um, albums in a long arc of a career that kind of represent a high water mark for the band creatively of some point. Uh, mm-hmm. of some kind and pink floyd i would i would argue you know would have that with dark side where everything that came before does coalesce in a logical way but yes, also yeah. represents the crystallization of a fairly radical departure you too had it with the tr- uh, movement from the unforgettable fire to the joshua tree the yep. joshua tree being the perfectly realized version of that radical departure that they had previously made kiss me yeah. kiss me kiss me represented a sort of a, a sprawling acid informed psychedelic album that had um some shimmering pop gems within it disintegration takes it into a, a you know a more somber direction but i think is the culmination of that diversion that they uh had experimented with on kiss me kiss me kiss me but, but and also, i don't think for any any of the bands that i just mentioned that like they've necessarily topped and that's a problem you know <laughs> you know it's like what do you know, do, man? I mean, I mean, you know, post this is Wish. This is Kiss Me, Kiss yeah. Me, Kiss Me. Most I, 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 didn't, like, I didn't even like Wish, so you know. I, I mean, I kind of did. Like people, people would kill to make those albums. Like if you're if you're a young band, and this was Maybe. just sort of like even so. So back to what we were talking about at the beginning. The timber of that synth is is invested in every song. It is just like injected into this. It is in everything, and that. That's a weird artistic statement to make. And and I know early 80s it would have been it's because all we have to, to work with is this synth. But this was like this is what we're doing. And so this needs to sound all these things. And, and that's the thematic glue of the whole thing. For me, well, it's, it doesn't sound like it's a Yamaha DX7, which was the actual keyboard that was on every single 80s record. Like, you know, the, a Flock of Seagulls yeah. record would have it and a, a Eurythmics record would have it. Yep. Um, a, a Duran Duran record would have it. A Tom Tom Club record would have it. You know, it was Kevin just and I have been talking a lot lately about my distaste for '80s production, um, and <laughs> it's uh, you know where, where Kevin kindly you know oh yeah so so here check this out here's a playlist from 1984 that's five hours long, um, just to uh, delve in just a touch. Um, but yeah, it is interesting, Aquamanian, sir. <laughs> um, but I will say, and, and I don't know, maybe it's just the shift in um, using 
similar sounds with slightly different instruments or, you know, so something like that. But, um, I can't really think of another eighties album that I like the production as well as I like on disintegration. I think Um, if you're thinking about the keyboards though, still, um, it's more of an aesthetic choice and it is a purely technological one. Although I'm sure, you know, um, they were using then cutting edge keyboard technology, both in the studio and on the road. But I think aesthetically it kind of leans back into like kind of a, the lushness of it reminds me of the Mellotrons that you would hear on Moody Blues yeah. or King, yeah. early King Crimson records. Yeah. And it's more of a, um, it is definitely, Kevin, as you mentioned, a textural, a deliberate textural choice. Yeah. And the guitars and the, um, you know, the stringed instruments really do support that. Um, and it comes together like a, a, a dark enveloping web. <laughs> yeah. So, so Wes, as an, as an ambient musician though, like how does that, you know, work into using like that, just a sound as the theme. Well, yeah, I mean, texture is, is key to everything in that, you know, there's very yeah. little melody. I've been, you know, with my own work, I'm putting more and more melody in, but you're still, you're, you're looking at layering, you're looking at textures, you're looking at a combination of different sounds that should ideally create something that sounds different from any of those individual pieces, you know, a good piece that's been made by you know a talented artist um of which i am certainly not one but um no, they, you Wes, know, i you, was gonna i was gonna interrupt you um and i do that anyway because i'm a jerk but i was course, gonna yeah. interrupt you to, to, to like say that your uh latest ten thousand the the ten thousand things record is so fucking good it's a stronger good. light it, a stronger light it is like i i listen i do listen to a lot of ambient music and uh and it is one of my favorite ambient records we listen to it every night for probably a month straight at least. Yeah, I think Faith actually sent me a Fabulous. message about like putting Fabulous. the girls to bed with it and I'm just kind of like man yeah. that is like and the I, best review anyone could yeah. possibly get. Damn. Yeah, but it, I mean and but the but you are teasing out of the kind of the thrum. You're teasing yeah. out like melodic strands and and sort of things to gossamer things to follow uh as the music progresses. <laughs> you know, I guess you know in a more explicitly song-based way you can hear that on disintegration you know yeah i can anyway well that's one of the things i love about this record i mean it is so melodic um it has all of those textures which are incredible and i think is you know part of what you're talking about with the difference between a pop album and um you know like i mean this is this is pre i don't know i mean what year like industrial music really started to kind of kick in but this is definitely pre-industrial well you know 79 uh probably 78 79 start, like, but like you're talking about like yeah a little more that's like that's mid 80s was it still mid okay yeah 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 ministry started as a as a goth uh, pop band. Oh, I know, so, I, I know yeah. they did, but the, yeah. but the album that when people they hit celebrate the from Ministry yep. is is yeah. is like mid eighties. Yeah. Well, I I would actually think the mind is a terrible thing to taste would be late eighties. I guess mm. if I'm if okay. I'm remembering my Ministry right, and then of course the one that everyone likes, Psalm sixty nine, is um mm-hmm. you know ninety. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a little bit more what I think of it. And it's, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, to, to, and I will come back to this issue of the textures and everything, but, but this is a point I was going to make earlier when you guys, I was actually going to ask the question of both of you, because you're both a little bit older than I am. Were you both listening to this album when it came out? You know, were you aware yeah. of Disintegration when it came out? We already kind of covered that. Um, but to, you know, rewind for just a minute, I was not, you know, I, I was eight through most of 1989. I turned nine in 89. Um, I didn't really hear the cure. I'm trying to think, you know, kind of what Casey was saying earlier of, um, 
you know, haven't gotten so quickly into them that, you know, it's a little hard to tell exactly what was heard at what point. But I can't recall for sure if I had heard other stuff before Friday I'm in Love came out. Um, you know, I was 12 um, oh, wow. or so when that came yeah. out. And I loved that song and I liked Wish a lot. And it's not, I haven't listened to that album in many, many years at this point. But, um, and then it was, I think, shortly after that, I think it was maybe 93 or 94 that my friend Patrick played me. Um, the boys don't cry um mm-hmm. album and and i just loved it you know i'd already liked friday i'm in love but but you know that was something entirely new i actually did not hear disintegration um in full until a number of years later um and that's one of the interesting things so i don't have the teenage associations to it um because i knew love song i knew pictures of you i knew um you know i'd heard lullaby before but um i didn't hear this album in, in, in you know in its entirety until i was probably into my 20s or at least late teens um so you know different experience um yeah, i can with that in general so 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 that's actually a good lead into what uh my next like larger question was going to be is that given that we know what this album he was writing about even though he's writing pop songs, but he's just sort of like, I'm dissatisfied creatively. I'm scared of getting old and stuff, but it is, is served as like an avatar for relationships. Uh, yeah. Like, like why does this all work still 30 years later? I mean, I can, I know my connections you know, to it because I, of lines. Like, and even if we drink, I don't think we can kiss in the way that we did mm-hmm. when a woman, yeah. when a woman was only a girl, you know, it's like, yeah, it's like probably, just it's probably incredibly specific to him or not but it it is uh it captures a universal sense of um longing and maybe regret for uh for what's past and can never be regained yeah and, and all of those things that people yeah. think that people experience differently at different times in their lives but that are part of it from you know at least <laughs> maybe you know maybe not when you're eight or nine when i was when it came out but you know at least through from teens up through, you know, probably the rest of your life, you're, you're dealing with those things kind of collectively. And I think that's one of the reasons that it does. It'll hit you very differently if you've been married for a period of time already, or if you've been, um, you know, through, instead of just a breakup through a divorce, like anything like that, you know, then you'll hear it in a different way without a doubt. For sure. For sure. And then, and there's, there's a, there's on the track, um, the title track actually, which, uh, I don't know about you guys. I, I think that's probably the best track in the Yeah. <laughs> 
if, if they had just like in the singles economy in 2019 just made this track and be like we're the cure motherfuckers just put it <laughs> like, up on SoundCloud and that was yeah, it yeah it, it, it would have been great but um you've got this like oh I miss the kiss of treachery the shameless shameless kiss of vanity the soft and black and velvety uptight against the side of me and uh you know th- that's the one point in the album where he's really addressing depression mm-hmm. um and uh is not really saying like if you just take LSD it'll all be good but, <laughs> but and and, and <clears throat> excuse me to get back to lullaby for just a minute um i would just say um given the the level of hallucinogenics i think he was taking at this time listen to lullaby i don't want to be on that trip I just want to like put that clearly out here. That whole like Spider Man coming to eat you, and I'm it's dinner tonight mm-hmm. deal. The like, what is it? You know, millions of like screaming holes, and the, the, the yeah, I don't want to. I don't want a thousand million uh, shivering furry holes. That's the yeah. one. Yep. yep. Let's. Yeah. Uh, let's avoid well, that. well, it, it it also becomes this like overarching. Um, again, it's fear of getting older, but like it, it, he was in his mind making an album about dealing with this depression and stuff. Oh, sure. And the this, depression this is, comes from the fact that you can no longer identify with, with, you know, whatever trappings or motivations that you had. Correct. Right. It's a disconnection you know, from your, something that you were previously yeah. feeling. But, 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 and this, this tracks back to like our conversation about tallest man on earth, Wes mm-hmm. is, is that, you know, sad songs like this are important. So you sympathize. I was wondering about we'll, that. We'll, we will still, we'll still, we'll still relate to this. We still relate to this uh-huh. thirty years later. And, and and I mean, I can't disentangle from my teenage listening years, but but we we'll still like relate to it. And people still the it resonates with people for that very reason, even though that wasn't necessarily uh, the the pure intent. But uh, as opposed to these little bites and stuff, and so like I guess what is. It comes down to whether or not Robert Smith is one of like our greatest like assets, our greatest musical assets. Our greatest he's writers. good enough. He's good enough to get away with a lot of things on this album that somebody who is not as talented would not be able to pull off. Um, yeah. Like I mean, well, one he's thing had, he's so, had practice. He's had practice. He's eight mm-hmm. albums in, as we've talked about. He's ten years into his career at this point. He's written punk songs he's written pop songs he's written goth songs you know and all of this one of the things that i think is really interesting that honestly like never even really hit me until today when i was um listening back to um part of the album is playing songs starts out with a description of the weather and obviously he is using the weather to represent something beyond that but this is a funny thing because i remember so clearly and like this memory just like hit me today as i was listening to that i studied creative writing in college um and one of the things that's kind of hammered into you as a creative writing student is basically don't talk about the weather like obviously if it matters in some way you know if your character needs to be wearing a raincoat or carrying an umbrella or something because that's going to matter or if like whatever but don't use the weather to symbolize somebody's internal emotions because it's just cliche and played out and done and he does it really really well in that song well, and it's so cold it's like the cold if you were dead like, don't try that home, kids. Don't world. try that home. Yeah, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> like, it's so simple, but it's so perfectly done. And, and yeah, yeah, you can't. And that's, I well, mean, that's know, the he, thing. That's what he, appen- great- he, appen- he appends each line with she said. So she you said, can blame it yeah. Someone else. yeah. <laughs> exactly. And that changes it to a certain extent. But it's also a great artist, of, you know, a great creator of any form can pull off those things that seem so simple and easy. You know, it's what, like, I read Roberto Bolaño, one of my favorite authors, and I'm just like, oh, my 
God, like, look at this. Look at how easy this is. I'm going to go write a novel. Yeah, and to do something then, in, you know, in defiance of the cliche uh, is is pretty profound. And yeah. there's only there's only a handful of artists that ha- have kind of earned the ability to defy the cliche without um, a doubt. And and you know, I think that there's a there's a simplicity to his writing that you know sometimes can seem a little bit um, maybe not on this record, but occasionally kind kind of can seem a little cloying. Um, when he doesn't pull it uh, off, it is when he doesn't pull it off. Uh, but you know, it's surprising how often he does. I mean, Mm -hmm. he's able to uh, render something of like an interior that you can identify with an emotional interior that you can identify with through lyrics in a, in a rock song, essentially. Um, and I've always kind of marveled at people that, that can do that. Uh, you know, the economy of, of words in a rock song is different than the economy of words in the various, you know, permutations of poetry. Mm -hmm. Um, but, and, and to really sell it and get it across in performance is yet another layer. And I think vocally he's able to, to really convey, uh, relatable emotion as well. So he's actually a, a great artist. And I think because of his longevity in the sort of, you know, fallow periods of the cure from both a, a cure obsessive perspective and a market interest perspective kind of lets us take him for granted a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. we're like, um, you know, the cure are going to be there and Oh, look, it's Robert Smith again with his big hair and, <laughs> and big shoes um, and red lips and red lips. But, uh, but I honestly think that when it comes time to sort of, close the book on him if there's uh, any society left to perform those functions <laughs> um, you know we'll probably uh, treat him as a great artist and i think very deservedly yeah he, I, I think that, i think that's right because like it, it, even look at uh, someone like pictures of you First line, or first two lines. I've been looking so long at these pictures of you that I almost believe that they're real. You don't need words after that. No, that's killer. That's the fucking song. So good. the opening line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's like the whole goddamn song. Like, you and don't he need also words doesn't screw that. it up with the words he puts in later. He manages no, right. to pull it off through right. the whole song, and that's like, yeah. I mean, you know, when when part of that is the lyrical, um, you know, he he manages to pull it off on this album, and and yeah, you know, Casey sort of hinted at this a minute ago. He doesn't pull it off always, um, but he does that so well um, on a lot of these. And then the other thing that I think is really important is the way he does sell it, as as Casey also just said. like mm-hmm. To write the lyrics is one thing. To sing the lyrics in a way that gets across um, that emotion and does have kind of a timelessness and universality is really impressive. One of the things that I love about Love Song, um, which honestly, like Love Song is, is like for starters, one of my favorite songs of all time. And, and for me, it's the standout on this album. But the way he... I mean, that is, you want a, a simple lyrical song. Um, you know, the, the whole thing is just, <laughs> obviously, like with the chorus, but whenever I'm alone with you, you make me feel like blank again. Um, 
and that put through with it, you know, a couple of different variations. But the thing that I love the most about that song is that every time he comes in on a verse, he's singing it with a different rhythm, rhythmic pattern. Um, the backing yeah. track has not changed, you know, but on the first time, um, he's singing it with one pattern. The second time he's like, he changes it every time that he's coming in, yeah. um, which is a really remarkable thing to do. Th- that's part of the maturity. That's somebody eight albums into a career. He, he's a great stylist and he yeah. still is. Uh, and I don't just mean a, a stylist of his voluminous hair, um, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> as a sort of interpreter of lyrics in, in performance. And the other thing that comes across with Robert Smith, even after all these years, is he loves his fucking audience. He's so generous to them. Uh, yeah. When the Cure perform, you know, they'll play three hours and they'll give the fans literally everything that they want and do it differently from like night to night. Like caring that much about your to about realizing your repertoire for the fans who are have hung with you and are really there to see you is a beautiful um, exchange between artists and audience that you don't often see. It's the um, dream, man. It's, it's amazing. The, every artist wants that. And he's up there, and you know, and he's like, you know, half the time, like in his regular life, I think his concerns are probably mostly like lager, curry, and football, and maybe not, <laughs> and I don't know what order that's in. But when he gets up on stage, right. you know, he's back up there flapping, he's flapping yeah. his hands and looking delighted, and really he's going to delivering, work. delivering powerhouse like uh, performances to this ra- uh, rapturous audience to this day for three hours. He doesn't have to do it like that. Yeah. There's bands out there that will play like a half hour. You know right. what I mean? They don't rotate their sets. Like this is, um, you know, Pearl Jam and I don't, I'm not a Pearl Jam fan, but they might be the only other like working band that uh, gratifies their fans at that level and, and makes uh, such use of their repertoire i think nick cave yeah. and the bad seeds there's a certain amount of that um nick yeah. cave is definitely somebody yeah. who will you know will go and and perform his best the best he can do that night i also i've never gotten an opportunity to see him um but you know with another birthday this week um almost as important as casey's um and you know a person who's a, who's accomplished almost as much uh, mr willie nelson um from what i understand mm-hmm. willie when he plays a show um will play i mean i have a friend who saw him who said that he played for like almost four hours um and uh, I, I have not had that experience, but I, I mean, I, wait, have like, you seen him and not had that? You mean I, I, his his sister uses a picture I took as as her Wikipedia photo. <laughs> Neither here nor there, but <laughs> but but uh, yeah, uh, Willie puts on a good show. That's, that's all you need to know. Yeah, it doesn't matter how fucking long he plays. That he's the, my Gemini brother. Another yeah. one. We got we got Miles <laughs> Davis. We got yeah. um we yeah. got Bob Dylan. We got Willie Nelson, and you know I'm just over here. So. That's quite a week, just, right? Well, Dylan's not in up? the same week as as you three, right? Prince, yes, he is. I believe Dylan's birthday is on the 24th. Yeah, oh, mine's right. on the mine's on the 23rd. Um, Man, and who else did I just say? I said, Prince. Uh, Prince, yeah, Prince is yeah. coming along. Uh, and moment. then that Miles guy, you know, he wasn't without talent. Miles His birthday Bobby was yesterday. Works the subway yeah. counter. Like, um, you know, <laughs> I don't uh, know when Robert Smith's birthday is. I, could I don't look know. It up. Yeah, we should look that up. Not effects based podcast. We're okay with not knowing that. The <laughs> so so the I mean, yeah. I mean, this this album is is very much. Uh, I think we're going to still be talking about it if there's anything left uh, in thirty years, like. You'll still be like, hey, this is still a thing. I, it's infinitely, to me, it's infinitely rediscoverable. Uh, even though, Casey, or all, both of you, we, we might know what that synth sound is. We don't know how to make it now. Um, but there, it, it is on the hitting universal note. And, and all that hits this universal note that it just, 
kids are going to keep picking this up. They're going to keep picking this up. Are you going to have so. your I dark? Have no idea. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have your dark friend. Like, has has Clara discovered the disintegration? No, I, I'm thinking that like she'll probably really go for it when she's like 12 or 13. Now, yeah, uh, given given her like you know predisposition. <laughs> <laughs> and and Ruby when she's five. That's uh, super <laughs> now Ruby Ruby's probably gonna like play rugby or something. You know what I mean? I think she's gonna go in it, and she's gonna be a mechanical engineer slash rugby player. Nice. That's my prediction. Nice. Where is the artsy one? But so. Uh, See if you guys agree with this. Like, you, we're always going to need this album, right? Mm-hmm. I hope so. I mean, I will. Yeah. Personally. Yeah. I, I personally will. Um, but, uh, you know, whether like young people will discover it is, you know, beyond my ability to predict. I think that it has uh, a certain amount of cool cachet that records like this tend to get passed down through the ages. I mean, I obviously didn't buy the Velvet Underground and Nico when it came out, right? Sure. <laughs> so- why not, Casey? Come on. <laughs> right. I, I actually literally was not born. Even though I'm I'm old, I'm not quite that old. <laughs> yeah, I I'd be interested to find if I know if this ends up in like used bins where people are like, What is this artifact? So yeah. We're old. It's old. Life's we win. Good. We win. <laughs> we win. Uh thank you guys for hanging out. We're gonna take a quick break, come back and finish this thing out and uh Cure's Disintegration at 30 years old is still as powerful as ever. It still uh, soundtracks a lot of you know sad parts of my life. Feeling down a little bit, put this on. And maybe, I mean, it makes me feel better. Maybe that works that way for you, but sometimes sad songs, uh, as they say, say so much. Um, and, uh, and this one is just uh, so heavy, dudes. It's so heavy, but it's so good, and I can't... What, what, what blows my mind is that nothing else sounds like it to this. You have a lot of like people who try to make music like The Cure. And uh, and look, you can break it into all the components, the voice, the keys, the guitar player, and certain people. But the point is, it doesn't sound like this and, and nothing good. Because you just rip something from the, the netherworld and it's on wax for us to enjoy. Uh, thank you to Casey and Wes for hanging out to talk about this. Uh, tonight... If you're listening, well, if you're listening to this today, this is going to be Wednesday. So they're they're going to be webcasting uh, their final disintegration. I think it's the final one for the 30th anniversary shows at the Sydney Opera House. Now that's a simultaneous live webcast on YouTube and Facebook. But it is if you're sitting here in Central Time, East Coast Time, it's at 5 a.m. on Thursday morning. So maybe you'll be up. Maybe you have morning duties that you have to do. I, I don't know. I'm going to try to be up. But hopefully they'll put that out uh, maybe even as a digital release or it'll be up on YouTube, uh, restreaming and whatnot. I would recommend catching it. There's a there's a video they did a couple years ago called Trilogy, and it, they did a trio of albums. One of them was Pornography, one of them was uh, Disintegration, and the other one was Blood Flowers. And the Disintegration set is fucking epic, and, and they're, just, they're just a great band. 
repent. So that's it. We're out of here. Uh, we're going to be back in a few short days. I think uh, we might be talking to Carly Rae Jepsen coming up. I know Ryan Porter has a new album coming up. Got a, got a lot of cool shit in the pipe. So go listen to The Cure. Go listen to Black Mountain. Oh, no.